Amen. Well, I'll add my welcome to all of you in the Capitol Press family here in the Sanctuary, Fellowship Hall, Fairfax, uh, online. It is great to be with you uh, this morning. Several of our uh, ministries had uh, great gatherings this weekend, Friday night. We were able to get together with our young adults for a night of worship on Saturday morning yesterday. We were able to get together with, for uh, pumpkins and donuts with our children's ministry, which was excellent candy and, and chalk art and all that kind of fun stuff. And then uh, as I came over to church this morning, I was reminded why we needed a three-week series on oneness, because uh, the entrance sign into uh, one of the doors to our church, someone has painted a giant T in chalk that says, Go Vols. Uh, I wouldn't know anything about that. It's probably my oldest son that did that yesterday, and so uh, probably not a problem here in D.C. If that happened in Alabama, there'd be a church split and I'd be run out of town. Uh, but uh, no, uh, this week uh, is the election, as uh, so many have already noted and prayed for throughout our liturgy. And so this is one of the reasons why we've been continuing to think about gospel unity. Now, there's lots of helpful articles, podcasts, sermons on the election, and our focus has been on gospel unity. Gospel unity as we participate in the election, as we prioritize issues from a biblically informed conscience, and as we prayerfully decide how our vote best advances them, again, we've been talking about gospel unity. Unity. And so let's listen to God's word again from John 17, verses 20 through 26. Then we'll pray and then let's hear Jesus's heart for us as a church family today. So, John 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me." Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we go to this text, we acknowledge that so many of us have a wide variety of, of, of emotions in various seasons, including this one. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, calm our souls, that you would reassure us with your love through this prayer that Jesus prayed for us it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, some of you may know the name Sheldon Van Auken. He wrote a book called A Severe Mercy. And in it, this is what he said in one place. He said, the best argument for Christianity is Christians, their joy, their certainty, their completeness. 
But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they are narrow and repressive. I mean, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. I think that's probably true. And I think it's a good reminder and why Jesus prayed like he did in John 17, for Christians to pursue and perfect their oneness in the body of Christ. And so specifically today, I want us to think about one question. How can we, how can we Capital Press family in D.C. be an answer to the prayer of Jesus this first week of November in 2020? How can we be an answer to the prayer of Jesus prayed in these verses that we read today? Very simple today, one point, one illustration, and then four thoughts. All right, let's go. First, one point. Uh, That point is this. We are to pursue oneness so that the world may believe and know Jesus. Pursue oneness so that the world may believe and know Jesus. Consider verses 21 and 23. This is what Jesus prayed. So that the world may believe, in verse 21, And in verse 23, so that the world may know. This is what Jesus is praying for, that we would be one so that the world might believe and know. Now, believe and know what? Well, we don't have to guess. In verses 21 and 23, Jesus prayed for the world first to know that the Father has sent Jesus. To know that the Father has sent Jesus. And then in verse 23, I love this one. I love this so much. We're going to spend all of our sermon time next Sunday on this. But verse 23, he prays that the Father loves his people, that this is what they would know, that they would know and believe that the Father loves his people just as he has loved Jesus. Next week, we're going to dive into that. The oneness that Jesus is praying for for us for us to pursue for his glory is also for the conversion of the world. Oneness is what Jesus prays. Gospel unity is what Jesus prays will lead to belief in the world. Not political elections, not dynamic preachers, and not evangelistic programs. All good things, right? But what Jesus is praying for is gospel unity in order so that the world might know and believe in him. And our unity, our gospel unity this week as believers should be compelling because it is so unworldly, so different from what everyone else experiences that it can only be explained as divine, When we mirror the oneness of God between God the Father and God the Son through our unity, then we are slowly but surely teaching the world about who God is and what he has done for us. Jesus prays for us, for the Capital Press family, to reveal the beauty and the mission of Jesus and the love of the Father to the world through our oneness. That's our one point today. Now, one illustration. Look back at verse 20. 
Remember we said a few weeks ago that Jesus prayed for these and those in verse 20. Do you remember who these were? These were the apostles, right? And those were future believers. And so let's consider the evangelistic impact of the apostles on their world. Now, last week, Bill noted that the apostles were quite the group of misfits, as Bill called them. They had a mixture of backgrounds, personalities, and flaws with really nothing other than Jesus at times, Jesus and fishing, to make that group stick together. But I really want to think very specifically about two of them. One, Matthew. And in places in the Gospels where Matthew is introduced, we're always told that Matthew, or usually told that Matthew was a tax collector. Now, we need to understand something about tax collector in that day and age. Tax collectors were considered traitors to the Jewish nation because they worked to collect taxes for their Roman occupiers. They were traitors. And not only did they represent a hated government, they were also known to be greedy and corrupt extortionists, lining their own pockets and then often employing thugs to collect payments like modern-day gangsters. And the tax collectors were despised. They were hated. They were maligned. And they were considered the worst of the worst by all of Jewish society. They they were unable to enter the synagogues, and they were not allowed to offer sacrifices in the temple. Do you remember in the Gospels, and specifically in Luke, when the scribes and Pharisees complained and asked Jesus about who he was hanging out with? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? (laughs) Those were the scandalous. And so Matthew, one of the apostles, was known as the tax collectors. But then there was also another disciple in the apostles known as Simon, and he's introduced as the zealot. Now, who were the zealots? We need to think about who the zealots were to understand what's actually happening in the apostles. Zealots were a specific political party full of radical rebels and outlaws that were determined not to collect taxes for the Roman Empire, but actually to overthrow the hated Roman rule and their tax collectors. According to one historian, they would often advance their agenda through violence, assassinations. They were known to have their own special daggers for that purpose and terrorism against Rome. They were in open warfare at times and then later in guerrilla war with the Romans. And when caught, many of them would usually be tortured and killed by the Romans. It's not a reach to say that at one point in his life, it's possible that Simon, the zealot, one of the apostles, would have killed Matthew, the tax collector, if he had the chance. (laughs) So now there's two apostles hearing this prayer of Jesus, Simon and Matthew, sworn enemies at opposite ends of the political spectrum at one time, and now they are loving brothers in Christ, worshiping and working together for the same cause, the gospel. 
They, they wanted to kill each other. And then Jesus put two people from different ideological tribes in the same community group for three years. But their unity transcended transform previous political lines, even though they probably, again, probably a little bit of sanctified imagination here, they probably still had several political disagreements around a socially distanced campfire. <laughs> Not for them, for us today. And again, all three of these sermons stand together. We've said for the last couple of weeks that unity doesn't mean uniformity, but it does mean priority. Priority of the gospel. And as a result of the priority of the gospel among the apostles, between Matthew and Simon, they impacted their city as God used them to share the gospel. And this once divided partisan group of disciples turned the world upside down as citizens of the kingdom of God. That's the evangelistic impact of the apostles. But now, friends, let's consider our opportunity for evangelistic impact in Metro DC in the first week of November in 2020. I, I heard this week a quote from Nietzsche, an atheist, that said, if church wants us to pay attention to God, they will have to sing more beautiful songs. If church wants us to pay attention to God, they will have to sing more beautiful songs. Now, he's not talking literally about music, and we should sing beautiful songs, but he's talking about living beautiful lives. Let me share with you four thoughts of how I think we can sing beautiful songs this week, very similar to ones we shared in 2016. Four thoughts about how we can sing beautiful songs, and display our oneness this week. First of these is this. You know I'm going to say it. Pray. <laughs> pray. And don't just pray, but pray like it makes a difference. Pray daily for our country, for the candidates, for the winners and the losers of the election, for all the issues, for everything, for yourself, and pray for your enemies. Pray for God's will to be done in this election, this nation, and on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that God would change our circumstances and our soul, that evil and injustice might be restrained, and that righteousness and justice might prosper. Pray that God would advance his kingdom in our day and that he would hasten that great day when Jesus will return and swallow up all the kingdoms of the earth, including our own. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and pray for oneness in our church, that we would be rooted in the gospel. So many of us have probably said word too many to our neighbor and word too few to our Lord. Pray like it makes a difference. I promise you it does. Second thought for pursuing gospel unity this week is this. Clothe yourself with temperance. Clothe yourself with temperance. One of our pastors said it's perhaps our culture's most neglected 
virtue, that we lack temperance, a measured approach with nuance, balance, and humility. Three examples of how we can do this. Number one, as we think about the election, don't defend the indefensible. Whoever you're voting for, they have flaws, they have failings because they're human. But let's not compromise our Christian witness by refusing to acknowledge this. All candidates have expressed views incompatible with biblical Christianity. They may have your vote, but they must not have your support on those issues. Have the humility and the integrity to acknowledge weaknesses and shortcomings. And if you can't think of any, you might not be doing this right. (laughs) Support your candidate passionately, but have temperance measured, nuanced, balanced. Second example of temperance, don't demonize the other candidates. Your candidate won't lead us to the promised land, and the other candidates won't usher in the apocalypse. And remember that they're human, they're image bearers, and our election process tends to dehumanize our leaders. In realities, they have upbringings, experiences, families, loves, challenges, fears. They brush their teeth, and they get headaches as well, and they all have souls created by God and loved by Him. Oppose other candidates passionately, but with temperance, measure, nuanced, and balanced. Third example of temperance is this. Don't demean those who vote for a different candidate. Decent, honorable people will vote for different candidates. Thoughtful and faithful believers will vote for different candidates. And they're all represented here in our flock. (laughs) And it's much too easy to assume that politics is a CAT scan of the human soul that it reveals all of our character, integrity, and faithfulness. It just simply doesn't. Don't assume that those who vote differently are suffering from moral or intellectual defect. Many of us need to approach politics with a little bit more modesty than we do. So engage your friends passionately. Be energetic about protecting the unborn, racial injustice, the poor, and the family, but have temperance measured, nuanced, and balanced. Support, oppose, engage with passion, but clothe yourselves with temperance. Third thought for us this week is this, and it was so beautifully sung in our song of preparation. Live without fear. Live without fear. The Bible has a lot to say about fear. Now, I've seen the little you know, tweets that there's 365 do not fears in the Bible. I don't know. I've never counted them, but it sounds good, doesn't it? But we can sum all of them up by saying, what does the Bible teach about fear? It says, don't. <laughs> and right now, there's too much fear in politics, in our pews, and in my own heart. And friends, this election matters. It matters. But we need to keep it in a biblical perspective. 
It is but one small chapter in a much longer story whose author is God. Whether your candidate wins or loses, it is your God who rules and reigns over history. And his plan is beyond our comprehension. We we can't possibly see all the elements he is weaving around us. We can't possibly understand how he's going to work it all together for his good and glory. And perhaps even the, quote, worst candidate will bring about, quote, the best kingdom results. We don't know. But the point is, we know him and we trust him so we can live without fear. Quite honestly, I don't think he's worried about this election. I don't think Jesus is up in heaven wringing his hands, thinking, how on earth did I let one of these candidates get elected? (laughs) So we shouldn't worry either, but we should have inner confidence, inner peace that makes us the least anxious people. Our powerful witness is displayed when we care deeply but we are not afraid. Friends, live without fear. And then fourth and final thought for you this week is this. Help the world know Jesus. Help the world know Jesus. That's his prayer in John 17. Our hope is not merely in the God who rules and overrules omnipotently from above. Our hope is in the God who is also drawn near the God who sent his son that we might believe as Jesus prayed. Our world is a mess. It's fallen, and we're a mess. I'm fallen, so he came to save us. (laughs) And now, even now, he is with us, and he will be faithful to us until death, until mourning, until crying, until pain shall be no more. He is with us until every tear is wiped away and all things are made new. He is with us. And perhaps this crazy election will be a turning point for Christians, that we will become one, more unified, so that the world may know Jesus and his love for them. And so while it's a crazy time, we should also view this as an amazing opportunity, not to give in to fear and finger wagging, but to be disarming and a productive presence. Our culture needs the resources that Christian community has to offer. Models of community and hospitality in our increasingly isolated age models of forgiveness and reconciliation in our increasingly polarized age, models of mercy and justice in our increasingly rudderless age, the reality of grace to change everything to a world that has no equivalent to Jesus. (laughs) And our our country, our country needs Christians. They need you working in government. Models like Daniel and Joseph seeking the good of God's people where God gives them opportunity. And friends, we must look forward and work 
for the welfare of this city. And a tapestry of solutions is needed. And we each need to figure out how to sow our part within our own families, within our own neighborhoods, with our colleagues and with our friends. How can we each help heal our community and country? I don't think that this is necessarily simple, and answering this question will take time, thought, and care. My point at the present is simply that it's the right question. It's a great time to follow Jesus, to be salt and light, to be that city on a hill that Jesus told his church to be. Friends, this week, let's sing beautiful songs to the world around us on social media and in social settings so that the world would see Jesus regardless of the outcome of the election. As Sheldon Van Auken reminded us, let's be a compelling argument for Christ this week, like Matthew and Simon were, and let the world see our oneness, unity without uniformity, in the gospel. I was reminded and exhorted by my four-year-old niece this week. Uh, As many schools and preschools do, they had an election day at her preschool. And so throughout the week, uh, every day they learned about four different animals, uh, a monkey, a zebra, a bear, and a giraffe. And they heard all about each animal's policies and characteristics throughout the week. And then the election day came, and her mom picked her up. And after the election, her mom asked her which animal won. And she crossed her arms and grumpily said, the zebra, (laughs) because she had voted for the bear. (laughs) And then her mom tried to console her, letting her know it's okay to be sad. And my four-year-old niece said, I know. If my animal doesn't win, I'm sad, but I'm still supposed to put a smile on my face and show joy because my joy comes from God and not from an animal. <laughs> Matthew 21:16, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Friends, let's pursue oneness. Let's pursue justice. Let's walk humbly with our God so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus and loves his people. Let's pray before we conclude with the Lord's Supper, reminding us of our oneness in Christ. Our Heavenly Father, there's no better way to know your heart than to listen to you pray, to listen to Jesus pray to you about us. And so, Father, this week in D.C., the first week of November in 2020, Father, help us to be an answer to your prayer as we we seek to follow you. Father, we pray that our gospel unity would be salt and light. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.